One of the classic British tall ships was cruising the Atlantic with 28 passengers, mostly teens and young adults, on a work-study program. Some of England's brightest and best. Out of nowhere, on a perfectly clear weather day, a mysterious blast of wind with an awesome force knocked down the ship and sunk her in a matter of minutes. Seventeen of the 28 passengers perished. There was no adequate explanation for this unexpected blast of wind. Officially, it was called a rogue wind. Unofficially, it was said to be just another act of God gone awry. Have you ever experienced a rogue wind? An unexpected, awesome blast of trouble that was totally beyond your comprehension? Obviously, thousands of families experienced a rogue wind on September 11th. 2001, in New York City, the Pentagon, and the fields of Pennsylvania. And how many times worldwide have we experienced rogue winds? Hurricane Katrina. Most recently, Hurricane Irene. Floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis. Loss of life, loss of hope. In addition, there are many personal storms that we have experienced. A devastating medical report. Cindy Barton, you have cancer. A pink slip at a job. Divorce papers served. The death of a loved one. Suicides. Fifty teenagers a year in Phoenix alone? Suicides? A call in the middle of the night. On October 19th, 1989, <clears throat> I had one of those calls. Sherry and I had gotten back from our uh, a minister's and wives retreat, and our children stayed with the friends from our church near where we lived. We'd unloaded our van and Sherry went up to the Badgers to pick up Nathan and Tyler. And Tyler asked if he could ride his bicycle home, which, of course, Sherry said yes. A couple minutes after this, and I didn't know what was happening, I got a call from John Badger. And he said, uh, Dwayne, uh, your son's, <clears throat> excuse me, your son's been in an accident. I'll be there in five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. On the ride to St. Anthony's Hospital, Sherry was with Tyler in the ambulance. I kept yelling at God and screaming. I wonder what John Badger thought of his pastor. The psalmist calls those rogue winds questions in the night. These are Job questions. God, why don't you stop these rogue winds? The death of a child. Molestation of a little girl by a family member. Where is God in our pain and in our suffering? Where is God during this rogue wind when it hits and destroys? Where is God in my pain? 
of all the objections we've been looking at these weeks in this sermon series, of all the reasons why not to follow God and his son, Jesus, perhaps the most persistent and most pernicious objection is this. If God is a God of love, then why does he allow pain and suffering? This objection I'd like to address, at least in part, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Where is God in my suffering? Philip Yancey, a wonderful Christian author, calls this question a problem that won't go away. And Lee Strobel refers to the dilemma of pain and suffering, as I mentioned earlier, as the question mark turned like a fish hook in the human heart. In fact, according to Barna, the biggest obstacle to spiritual seekers is this question. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? You talk about a God of love. You talk about a God of mercy and grace. I just don't buy it. Where is God in the midst of pain and suffering? When a rogue wind hits our world, when a rogue wind hits your life, where is God? I'd like to address this question simply by making four biblically bold statements about God and then let you draw the inferences. Each statement, I believe, can help us understand who God is and his place in a world that is filled with pain and tragedy and suffering. Statement number one, God exists. The Bible begins with the existence of God and it ends with God's promise, as I said in the prayer, to make all things new. Revelation 21.5, to make all things new. God began at the beginning of time, the Alpha and the Omega, and God ends this universe by saying, I will make all things new. Now, I could try and convince you of the existence of God from creation or DNA or intelligent design or my personal experience. In fact, I've tried to convince you of the existence of God using all of those methods. But instead, this morning, let's come to this question of God's existence from a a completely different direction. What if I were to say to you that the presence of evil in the world is strong, powerful proof of the existence of God? The presence of evil in this world is strong and powerful proof of the existence of God. Let me explain. So why do you feel outrage when you think of 9-11? Why do you think of uh, 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 with deep sadness and sorrow and anger when you think of what happened to six million Jews during the Holocaust? Why is it that that video about Princess Lost just not only blessed you, but it totally irritated you? Why would anybody harm a child? Why is hurting others, especially children, considered wrong? Sexual abuse, drug cartels in South America. Why do you feel outrage at these things? And I'll tell you why. Because you feel what you feel presupposes that there is a difference between good and evil. Presupposes it. If you go to a prison, you could ask Will Devon. Will Devon used to be a counselor in a prison. You go to a prison and you ask guys in there, uh, is there a difference between good and evil? And they'll say, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, their level of where that good and evil line is is different. For them, maybe than you and I, but especially if you talk about children, is hurting children wrong? And almost all of them would say absolutely. In fact, if you're a child molester and you go to prison, watch out. 
there's a good chance you're going to be in big trouble. So everybody has the sense that there's a difference between good and evil. Again, it may vary on the scale, but everybody believes that. Why is hurting others, especially children, considered wrong? Why is the extermination of Jews considered wrong? The lynching of black people in the South in the 20th century, less than 100 years ago. Because there is a standard of what is good. Philosophers call it supreme good. Theologians call it God. Everyone has within them a God-placed sense that there is a difference between right and wrong. And that's why you feel the enormous anger about 9-11 and about a little girl being hurt. In other words, something is only good or bad if there is an objective standard. Otherwise, what do we know that's good and bad? Well, let's say, for instance, that uh, your teenager comes home from school. Booms, pounds into the house, running up and down, excited, and says, Mom, Dad, guess what? You say, what? Because you want to hear good news. I got a 60 on my test. And you go, out of what? (laughs) A 60 out of 60, that's really good news. A 60 out of 100, not so good. There has to be an objective standard. My point is, if there is no God, then there is no objective standard, no supreme good then where do we get the standard of goodness by which we judge evil? That is a powerful proof of the existence of God. Even philosophers have to admit this. The concept of good and evil is not present in an animal. Did you know that? The concept of good and evil is not present in plants. Maybe broccoli, but no, not even that. The very presence of a standard of good and evil must be accounted for. And science has no clue where we get it. Let everyone out of jail if there's no standard of good and evil. Let them out. Who's to say they're wrong? Who's to say that robbing a bank is wrong? Who's to say that hurting a child is wrong? Who's to say that? Child pornography, it's okay. Elimination of Jews or blacks, it's okay. Because there is no standard of good and evil. See, the very idea of the difference between good and evil and the recognition of it proves the existence of a higher being. Historically, all things we know begin with God. There's a cartoon I ran across, but I couldn't find it uh, to throw up on the screen. But the cartoon is Satan is uh, greets people as they're coming into hell. And he's slapping them on the back and say, welcome, welcome. He says, welcome. You'll find that there, there's no right and wrong here. Just what works for you. And what works for you is you're going to spend eternity in hell. Statement number one, God exists. The presence of evil is a powerful proof of his existence. Statement number two. God created us with a free will. This is a biggie. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, why didn't he make a world without evil and suffering and tragedy? Oh, by the way, he did. It was called the Garden of Eden, but we'll get back to that later. Why didn't God stop 9-11 or the Holocaust? Or Hurricane Irene. Or that car driven by a 16-year-old that hit my son, Tyler. Why didn't God stop that? He could have stopped any of those things. He could have just changed it by five seconds and stopped that. The classic defense of God against the problem of evil is that it is not logically possible to have free will and at the same time have no possibility of moral evil. In other words, once God decided to take the risk of free will, 
And he did that out of love for us. He had to make us with the capacity for autonomous decision making. Otherwise, we're a puppet or a robot. We had to have the ability to choose to love God. And if we have the ability to choose to love God, we have to have the ability to choose to not love God. Or else it's not a choice. You see, the source of evil in the world is not God's creation. It's not God, but mankind's freedom. So, Pastor, are you saying that rogue wins or bad things that happen in my life are the result of my decisions? Uh, they're, they're my responsibility. They're my fault. Is that what you're saying? Well, yes and no. In fact, let's look just real briefly at four sources of evil, and then you be the judge. One source of evil is that some evil is my own fault. Now, every one of us in here knows that. We know that sometimes we have done wrong things and we've experienced the consequences because of those. Jeremiah says it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things. Much evil is being about, I want my way and I want to control you, another human being or another race of people or another country. Evil is about wanting my way above everything else. To kill, to hate, to stray sexually, it's all selfish. And all sin comes from those words, I want. I want. To seek my own way above all else. To bend a knee to the world instead of bending a knee to God. The alcoholic may be saved, he may love Jesus, but pretty much he's going to die early from cirrhosis of the liver. You rob a bank, you go to jail. Sexually permissive, um, an unwanted pregnancy or abortion or STDs. It's our own choice. There's, as you, many of you that are around church know, and those of you who are new, I want to tell you a story about David in the Old Testament, King David. Uh, David, as a young man, was a godly man and he loved God and he gave his whole heart to God. But as he got more rich and more powerful and is king of Israel, uh, he, lost, he lost that touch with God. In fact, he became the master of his own domain. And that included everything, including um, women. He saw Bathsheba, who was not his wife, and he lusted after her. He had an affair with her. And then he went the further mile and had Bathsheba's husband go into battle on the front line so that he would be killed. And one sin after another, one sin after another, David was a mess. But he never took responsibility for his own son, his own sin, until the prophet Nathan came to him. And Nathan told him a story. And he told him a story that was like David's story, only said it was somebody else in the kingdom. There's this guy that's not taking responsibility for his sin. There's this guy that's causing other people to die. There's this guy that's having an affair with other people. And he's just a mess. And nobody's holding him accountable. And David said, you bring him to me. I'll hold him accountable. And Nathan said, you are the man. It's on you. It's your fault. It's your sin. One of the reasons that evil comes into this world is because, quite honestly, you and I choose to do evil. But that's not the only reason. Some evil is not our fault. Others do evil to us. Somebody gets in a, a car after they have drunk alcohol and they kill a family of four. 9-11. Hurricane. A little girl with a broken soul. It's not her fault. Decisions to rape, to kill, to drive under the influence, to fly hijacked jets into towers. 
That's the depravity of man. And there are people in this world, many people in this world who are evil and they are bent on doing evil. And sometimes you just get in the way. Source of tragedy and evil. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's you or someone else. There's a third reason. And it's just we'll just call it natural calamities. Things that are an act of God. When we say they're an act of God, that's a misnomer. It's not an act of God. It's an act of a broken, sinful world. God created Eden. That was his plan A. Eden was this great place. Everything was perfect. Adam and Eve were perfect. All they had to do is say, yes, God, I love you. I'm going to do it your way. Everything was good. But when Adam and Eve sinned, and by the way, you and I have sinned too. Don't blame them. When Adam and Eve sinned, it set in motion a broken, sinful person, a broken, sinful world. And that has gone on and it is roiled. And we see it in our ecology. We see it in our economy. We see it in our world that everybody's trying to be above somebody else. And it's over and over and over again. It's not acts of God. It's just simply a sinful world that is broken, a broken planet out of balance, askew. And it is all wrong and all mixed up. But God promises Revelation 21, 21. Five. One day, and this includes creation, I will make everything new. I'll make you new. We know that as Christians. But I will make everything new. There's a, a fourth uh, source of uh, tragedy and evil. And it's simply this, the presence of the evil one. The devil, Satan. Devil is real and his design is to destroy you. And all that is good and godly and he wants to destroy you in body, soul, and mind. And First Peter 5.8 says, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Evil is in the world not because God can't deal with it. He did on the cross. But because he loves us enough to let us decide for ourselves. He gives us a choice. The wide road, the narrow road. His way or the other way? Statement number two. God created us with a free will. Statement number three. God is all-knowing. If God is all-knowing, then he knows not only the present, but the future. The greatest example of that is uh, what I call deicide. Deicide is simply the death of God. Now, the worst possible thing that could happen in our universe is the death of God. So let, let, me, let me just kind of play along with me for a minute. Some of you like to play devil's advocate. I'll give you an opportunity to play devil's advocate. Uh, suppose you're, just follow along this, this dramatic storyline. Suppose you're the devil, and you're an enemy of God, and you want to kill him, but you can't, because he's God. <laughs> so you can't kill him. However, God has this ridiculous weakness for creating and loving human beings enough to give them a free will so that they will love him freely. So this, this weakness that we find in God is his, his decision to let human beings have a free will. Now you say, now I can get to God somehow. I can do that through temptation. I can whisper in their ears lies and, and mistruths. And, and I can do that. And I'll take Adam and Eve hostage by whispering to them. So you come down to earth. You corrupt human beings. They choose to fall to their temptation. You can't make a human being do anything, but you can tempt them. Uh, you, you drag many people to hell. When God sends the prophets, you kill the prophets. 
Then God does the most foolish thing of all. He gets into a body. It's called Jesus. He limits himself by that body and chooses to play by the rules of the world. To redeem broken mankind, to save us, to take our sins on him. That's what he chose to do. And you say to yourself as the devil, you say, well, I can't believe God is so dumb. Love has scrambled his brains. Now he's limited by flesh and blood. So what you do is the devil, you inspire your agents, Herod, Pilate, Judas, Caiaphas, crucify him, crush him. How sweet that will be to kill God, deicide. So that's exactly what the devil does. I'm going to kill God. So Jesus hangs on the cross, forsaken by man and God. Bleeding and dying, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone is crying. Everyone is suffering. Everyone is in pain, watching the desolation and the the devastation of the death of God. The devil goes, yes, triumph. But of course, you couldn't be more wrong. This evil picture, this wicked scenario, this is not good Friday. This is bad Friday. This death on the cross of God, this wicked scenario, this cross is, listen, God's greatest triumph and Satan's supreme defeat. How is it possible that in the midst of something absolutely ridiculously tragic, we can look behind it and see something good? That's what God does all the time. That's what God did at 9-11. That's what God does for these little girls who are molested. That's what God does in your cancer. That's what God does. He stands behind it. He says, I know you can't see this, but believe me, I am doing something. I'm making all things new. God's greatest triumph, Satan's supreme defeat. God comes face to face with the worst evil and says, I will make all things new. In the book of Genesis, Joseph, you know the story about Joseph and his brothers. His brothers were wicked Uh, They tried to kill Joseph. They finally sold him and he ends up in Egypt and all kinds of things have happened. And and these brothers finally are confronted with Joseph and he's still alive. And now he's a prince of Egypt. And here's what Joseph said in Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. The saving of many lives. What looks absolutely tragic. Eleven brothers trying to kill their kid brother. What looks absolutely tragic. God takes that and flips it. Talk about flipping houses. We're talking about flipping human beings. God flips it and makes all things new. What you see God doing is never as great as what you don't see. Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.28 is all over this church. It's all over our world. It's all over our country. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his his purpose. Probably one of the most important verses in the Bible. No matter what rogue wind you experience, grace comes out of tragedy. Out of the cross came the resurrection. Out of Tyler's death, Sherry, if you, sometime you ask us, we can tell you so many things that have happened as a result of Tyler having been killed. God didn't create it, but he took something that was tragic and he made some amazing things happen as a result of it. 9-11. You want to hear some amazing things? Uh, Pastor Scott uh, referred to this. Uh, mission, missiologists or mission uh, researchers estimate that uh, there are more Muslims who follow Christ in the last 10 years 
please hear this, than over the last 15 centuries. More Muslims have come to Christ since 9-11 in 10 years than they have over 1,500 years. Is that taking something tragic and behind it standing God doing something great with that? Genesis 50:20 to the saving of many lives. In Iran, in 1979, there were 500 known Christians. Today, there are 220,000. In Iraq, before 2003, in Saddam Hussein, there were 600 known Christians. Today, there are over 70,000, and millions of Arabic New Testaments are, have been shipped in there since Saddam Hussein ousting in 2003. Millions of Arabic New Testaments. Egypt, widespread evangelism, over 10 million Christians. One example of out of tragedy, God says, I'll make all things new. If God can do this in the world, how about when a rogue wind hits you? God will weave your pain and your suffering into the fabric of his purpose and blessing and mercy and grace. Statement number three, God is all-knowing. He makes all things new. The last statement is this. God is with us. Psalm 34, 18. God is near the brokenhearted. We started this message. Actually, we started this service by asking, where is God in evil and tragedy? At 9-11, Katrina, your tragedy. Here's the truth of the word of God. He is in the middle of every dying soul. Every broken heart, he is near. Every fireman, every police officer, every family member, every little girl, whispering grace and hope, come to me. Now's the time to come to me. Whispering love, calling them. The Bible says that God enters all of your suffering, into every rogue wind, into every pain. He bore your sin. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. That word in the Hebrew, he took up our infirmities, means that he literally ate them. Consider every single pain and sin in all of history, all rolled up into a ball, eaten by God, fully tasted and digested eternally. He is in the middle of your pain. God's response to our suffering, his tears. Lazarus, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, three of his close friends that were not disciples, when when he heard that Lazarus had died, the Bible says that Jesus wept. That Job, in the midst of his incredible suffering, has anyone ever suffered like Job? He said at the end of the book, in in chapter 38, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. The answer to the question, where is God in our suffering, in our tragedy? It's the same message he gave to Moses. The same message he gave to David. The same message he gave to those firemen at 9-11. The same message he gives to every little girl who is hurt. I am with you. I am with you. Loving, redeeming, healing, calling. I am with you. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads, please, Father? Lord, in the midst of our rogue winds, we 
stumble and fall and we are taken aback and we say it just doesn't look right. It just doesn't feel right. Father, when we consider the greatness of who you are, when we consider that you loved us enough to give us a free will and that caused all kinds of turmoil in this broken, sinful world, we thank you that you are still standing behind us, behind every tragedy and saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you ever, ever, ever. Father, may the truth of this message pierce our hearts. May we pass this truth on to others. May we know it. May we feel it. May we experience it. May we tell it. I am here, God says. I am near the brokenhearted. I am with you, calling you to redemption, calling you to forgiveness calling you to salvation. I'm with you. Father, allow this message to take root in our lives and to change the very fabric of who we are, how we live our lives, and how we bear witness to the mercy and love of Jesus in our world. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all of God's people said together, Amen. Amen.